welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Peter Rosher, Global Head of Reed Smith's International Arbitration Practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Arbitral Insights, Reed Smith's podcast for people who use international arbitration. We've got an interesting topic this week, following on from our series dealing with proposed changes to the Arbitration Act 1996. The Law Commission of England and Wales, which is uh, an independent body that suggests proposed updates or changes to legislation in England and Wales, has been looking at the Arbitration Act 1996, which is the piece of legislation that governs arbitration in England. And as part of that process, the Law Commission uh, asked uh, leading arbitral practices, including Reed Smith, to give their opinions on a variety of proposed changes. Last week, we looked at summary judgment. And this week, we're looking at uh, proposals to clarify the law, which identifies the governing law of the arbitration agreement, uh, where there's an international element to the um, to the underlying subject matter. With that in mind, I'm going to ask uh, Matthew Townsend in our Hong Kong office to introduce his thoughts. Thank you very much. That's right. I am a partner at Reed Smith based in Hong Kong. And as arbitration lawyers, when we are confronted with a new claim or a new dispute, one of the points that we first look to is the law of the arbitration agreement. So it it is very important. And it's important for two reasons. The first is that the law governing the arbitration agreement determines the scope and also the validity of that agreement. And depending on which law applies, uh, you might come up with different outcomes. So for instance, the requirements under, uh, relevantly to this part of the world, the requirements under PRC law are very different from the requirements under Hong Kong or Singapore law. That's the first reason. And the second reason is that um, pursuant to uh, what is called the separability principle, which is embraced by many legal systems, including uh, England, Hong Kong, Singapore, the law governing the arbitration agreement uh, can be different uh, from the law governing the main contract. So where a clause uh, does not specify a governing law, we as arbitration lawyers always encourage clients and uh, colleagues to make sure that it does. But where there's no governing law um, in the arbitration agreement, then you might find that the parties end up in a satellite dispute over what law applies and consequently whether the arbitration agreement is valid or whether the uh, dispute is arbitrable in the first place. And this can be, as you can imagine, a threshold issue dependent on which uh, the entire claim might succeed or fail. And this is why arbitration institutions in recent years, uh, for those who have been following the evolution of the model arbitration agreements, uh, these institutions have started to introduce governing law clauses into those agreements. Because by specifying this law, you avoid some of the procedural headaches, which uh, can increase the cost and time of any arbitration proceedings. And also, if you want any more indication of how important the law governing the arbitration agreement is, um, 
then when the king opened parliament on the 7th of November and he announced that the UK government will be introducing uh, new arbitration legislation, uh, the first item referenced in that speech uh, was a clarification of the law governing arbitration agreements. So it, it is quite an important issue. Thanks, Matthew. That's fascinating. I understand Jonathan in the Hong Kong office is going to talk now about the, the existing English approach, which these proposed changes potentially will alter. Thanks, Liam. Uh, by way of introduction, my name is Jonathan Tsang, and I'm an associate in the commercial disputes team here in Hong Kong. And the leading approach in England and Wales is set out in a Supreme Court judgment in Enka and Chubb, which was handed down in October of 2020. And in this case, the majority in the Supreme Court actually adopted quite a complex test in which they held that um, the governing law of the arbitration agreement is primarily the law expressly chosen by the parties for the arbitration agreement. Um, and if there is no express choice, then the law of the main contract, as impliedly chosen by the parties, will generally extend to the arbitration agreement. But um, this inference can actually be rebutted or negated by additional factors that imply that the arbitration agreement should be governed by the law of the seat instead. So, for example, if any provision of the law of the seat indicates that where an arbitration agreement is subject to that law, the arbitration will also be treated as governed by that country's law, then this will be a factor that will be considered by the court in rebutting uh, the general inference that we just talked about. The second factor is that where there is a serious risk that the law of the main contract would render the arbitration agreement to be ineffective, this will also be quite heavily relied upon as a, a rebutting factor by the courts. In the absence of any choice of law for the main contract or the arbitration agreement, the law with the closest connection will govern. So usually the law of the seat, the place where the arbitration legally occurs, uh, where the parties have chosen um, their seat of arbitration. And this approach uh, means that it's possible for the arbitration agreement to be governed by a different law than the main contract, and especially where the arbitration is seated in England and Wales, but the main contract is governed uh, by a law elsewhere, by a foreign law. Thanks, Jonathan. And Matthew, could you comment on the uh, proposed reforms by the Law Commission? What, what actually is it that, that is being proposed? Yeah, absolutely. So Jonathan did an excellent job of setting out the ENCA test, but it is of a fairly complex and quite nuanced test. And what the Law Commission recommended and what the um, proposed bill will introduce is a new statutory rule, which is much more simple uh, and really is, in effect, a two-part test. So the first part of a test is that it, if the parties have expressly chosen a law in their arbitration agreement, then that law will apply. And the second part is that if there is no express choice, then the law which applies will be the law of the seat of arbitration. And as Jonathan said, that, that is the uh, law of the place where the arbitration legally occurs, or, or the law of where the courts who have substantive jurisdiction over the case, the, the law of those courts. 
So this uh, is a much more simple two-part test, um, the express choice of law or otherwise the law of the seat. Um, and the commission in their recommendations explained how they consider it much more simple and certain uh, and is aimed to avoid the kind of satellite arguments which might arise under the ENCA approach, which uh, I mentioned in my earlier answer. Thanks, Matthew. And Mathilde, how does that compare with the approach in France? Thank you, Liam. So I'm Mathilde Adam, and I'm an associate in the Ritzmis Paris office working in the Energy and Natural Resources Group. French law takes a very different approach from current English law in addressing the issue of the law governing the arbitration agreement. The French position has the merit of being simple. Um, when faced with this question, French courts entirely avoid engaging in a conflict of law analysis to determine the applicable law for the arbitration agreement. And instead, they directly apply what the term a substantive rule of international arbitration law. And according to this substantive rule, French courts will apply mandatory rules of French law and international public policy to the issue at hand. The objective of the substantive rules is to ensure the effectiveness of arbitration procedures. Examples of substantive rules include the autonomy of the arbitration agreement vis-à-vis the main contract, or the extension of the effect of the arbitration clause to parties directly involved in the performance of the contract. This system may seem very Franco-centric, but it contributes to making French arbitration law highly attractive because it is based on a practical approach focused on the effectiveness of arbitration. For those not familiar with French law, this solution may seem quite peculiar. However, we have a striking example of the difference between the French and the English position, which show from my point of view that the French solution currently provides more legal certainty. And this is the Kababji versus Kutfut saga. Without entering into the detailed facts of the case, it originated from a franchise agreement with a choice of law clause in favor of English law and an arbitration clause which provided from an ICC arbitration seated in Paris. So you may anticipate that this decision could have led to complications and you would be correct. It resulted in conflicting decisions between English and French courts on the question of the extension of the arbitration clause to a non-signatory party. English courts applied a conflict of law analysis and concluded that English law was applicable to the arbitration clause, and consequently they concluded that the clause should not be extended to the non-signatory party. And in contrast, French courts directly applied their own substantive rule that the effect of the arbitration clause should be extended to the non-signatory party if they had been sufficiently involved in the performance of the contract, and they concluded that the clause should be extended. So, as Jonathan and Mathieu explained, the current English position is based on a quite complex test and could lead to courts selecting either the law of the seat or the law of the contract as the law applicable to the arbitration agreements, depending on the facts of the case. Um, in contrast, the French position has the merit of being clear, uh, even if, if it can be criticized, when parties choose Paris as a seat, they should expect French substantial rules to apply. And in this perspective, the proposed reform of English arbitration law seems to be a positive step towards ensuring more predictability. Thanks, Mathilde. Very interesting. Jonathan, could you comment on the Hong Kong law approach to determining the governing law? Sure. Hong Kong courts uh, tend to respect the judgments that are handed down by the UK Supreme Court. And on this issue, they've also chosen to follow the Inca and Chubb approach as soon as it was handed down in October of 2020. 
this is not a surprise, given that the common law principles of contractual interpretation underpinning the Enka decision has long been the law of the land in Hong Kong. And so the latest Supreme Court judgment represents a continuation of prior Hong Kong authority on this matter from as early as 1994 in a case called York Air Conditioning and Refrigerating and Lam Kwai Hong. I'll briefly share with you all one of the latest judgments handed down in Hong Kong. In January of this year, the Court of First Instance in a case called China Railway Hong Kong Holdings Limited and Chungkin Holdings Company Limited had to determine the governing law of the dispute resolution clause in a debt agreement. And the context of the case is this. The defendant, Chungkin, issued a summons to stay the proceedings in favor of the court of Wuhan, which is a city in mainland China. To decide whether to grant the stay, the court in Hong Kong had to consider whether the contracts sued upon by the plaintiff, China Railway, contained an exclusive jurisdiction clause in favor of the Wuhan People's Court, and in turn, what the governing law of the jurisdiction clause should be. Now, although the debt agreement relied on by the plaintiff was governed by Hong Kong law, there was actually no express choice of governing law for the dispute resolution clause itself. In this situation, the Hong Kong court chose to follow ENCA, holding that the general rule is for the court to discover the governing law of the jurisdiction clause by construing it against its context and discovering the party's intentions. And only if such intentions could not be discovered would the court resort to the closest connection test. So in construing the party's intention, the Hong Kong court will generally consider an express choice of law clause that is applicable to the main contract to also apply to the jurisdiction clause. And in the application of the closest connection test, the Hong Kong court also followed the majority of ENCA in holding that the law of the chosen seat of arbitration will likely apply. So conclude, the court finally found that the governing law clause in the debt agreement represented the best indication of the party's intention as to the governing law issue. And further, that this had not been superseded by any subsequent express governing law clause. In applying ENCA, the governing law, the jurisdiction clause, should also be Hong Kong law. However, there is an important caveat um, that I would like to draw um, our listeners' attention to, is that the Hong Kong court uh, said that these principles are partially justified by policy considerations that are unique to arbitration. And because of this, um, these principles do not necessarily apply in full force to jurisdiction clauses in general. So in Hong Kong, the application of the Enka and Chubb tests appears to be siloed within the context of arbitration agreements. Thanks, Jonathan. Matthew, could, could you comment on whether the proposed reforms being made by the Law Commission are likely to be welcomed by arbitral practitioners and users? Sure, absolutely. The answer is yes, but um, you probably would like a bit more of a, a detailed answer than that. The And, and I think um, maybe starting from the fact that in adopting the law of the seat as, as the default law uh, governing the arbitration agreement, the Law Commission and, and ultimately the British government um, have rejected 
two other possibilities. The first being uh, the law of a contract as the default, and the second being a nuanced test uh, of the sort which uh, uh, arises in Enker. And uh, in choosing the seat, there, there's an obvious advantage, and it's an advantage uh, that Matilda's already mentioned in the context of French law. The advantage is clarity. The only situation now in which there will be uncertainty um, as to the governing law will be where the clause or the arbitration agreement provides for no seat at all. And that will be in a fairly small number of cases. And from a policy perspective, uh, the amendment or, or the reform makes sense as well, uh, because it mean, it makes it less likely that you will have an English seated arbitration where um, the validity, the question of the validity of the arbitration clause is a foreign law issue. Because as those of us who practice arbitration law know, uh, when you are litigating that kind of question, you will invariably end up having to advance expert testimony in the foreign law in question. And having English tribunals or English judges uh, deciding foreign law issues based on that kind of expert testimony can be quite a lengthy and costly process. So those are the advantages, um, in effect, clarity and simplicity. Now, what about the disadvantages? Uh, well, there's the potential inconsistency between uh, governing laws, uh, the governing law of the arbitration agreement and the governing law of the contract. That's an obvious one, which may create difficulties in interpreting and applying the contract as a whole. And there's also the flip side of having such a clear test, which again, Mathilde, I think, referenced in the context of French law, which is that you get clarity, but you lose some of the flexibility and nuance in determining the governing law of the arbitration agreement. So there's less room for exceptions or um, implications uh, to reflect the true will of the parties. Uh, and I think Jonathan's example may be an example where uh, the uh, court did uh, take quite a uh, subtle analysis in Hong Kong. Um, and, and I guess the, the final point is it could be argued that there's a party autonomy issue, which is uh, ultimately you have two parties. They agree to a contract governed by one law and they agree to have any disputes arising out of that contract resolved by arbitration in the UK. They may not um, have it at any point intended to have the arbitration agreement governed by English law, but that is the result that they end up with uh, by virtue of this result. But on balance, taking these advantages and disadvantages into uh, account, it is a welcome development. And, and the reason for that, in my view, is that certainly my clients value certainty, and I think they'll benefit from changes which uh, increase the certainty of the procedure in arbitration uh, even if it does deprive uh, us lawyers of the opportunities to make uh, kind of complex jurisdictional arguments based on, uh, for instance, the Enker test. So I think it will be welcomed. And the takeaway, of course, irrespective of this change in law, is that parties should always, uh, in their arbitration agreements, um, uh, make an express choice of law. That's the way to avoid any complexity at all. Great. Thanks, Matthew. Yeah, that's really helpful. So the key takeaway is make an express choice of law, and then these considerations hopefully will will fall away. That's good to bear in mind. Great. Well, I thought I think that was a, a fascinating and useful podcast that dealt with a very important proposed change to the, to the law in England and Wales. 
And it's fascinating to get that, that Hong Kong and French perspective on this as well. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Mathilde, uh, for taking part in the podcast. And uh, just falls to me to introduce the next topic that we'll cover in relation to the proposed changes, which is challenging the substantive jurisdiction of the tribunal. Look out for that in our next Arbitral Insights podcast. Thanks. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. To learn about the Reed Smith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the cost of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on reedsmith.com or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at reedsmithllp on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.